Okay. Okay. I Wait, think, let me I just think I'm good sure. right here. Yeah, if I keep the mic right here. If I the mic stops time. swinging, it's like swinging a little bit. Yeah, I don't have that problem, but... everybody and welcome to Anti-Drug Social Club. I'm your host Kim Sacconi. Today's podcast was hosted by CFC Loud and Clear Foundation. It is a relapse prevention organization located in Monmouth and Ocean County. We offer multiple pathway meetings. Um, we have sober living as well as different resources, career resource, um, educational opportunities. We also have different fundraisers running throughout the year to help support people that are rebuilding their lives. So to see more of the information that I'm talking about in this episode can be found in the description underbar um, of whatever platform you guys are streaming on. And I want to thank you guys for being with us today. Uh, so I'm super excited because today we have one of the funniest people I know here with us, um, Mr. Zach. Hi, Zach. Hi, Kim. How are you doing today? Doing pretty good. How's your November going so far? Uh, my November. Let's see. It's going, it's actually going swell now that I think about it. Um, I work for Discovery Institute. I was a behavioral health technician there for the last, you know, four or five months. Mm -hmm. And um, I recently was promoted to admissions coordinator, which is a blessing because I get to work from home with having transportation issues and stuff like that, that a lot of us develop in our addiction. That's just a huge plus for me. I get to be on the more professional side of things. I'm still helping people get into our treatment facility. Very blessed. Yeah. 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 No, that's awesome too. Congratulations on your promotion again. That's super awesome that you're able to work from home. So navigating from, because this is something that does come up, right? So a lot of people switch over to working from home and then COVID, it mm -hmm. does cause sometimes mental health, things like that. So what is the difference of being able to now work from home like luxuries versus things that you have to change to make sure that you're best? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, first and foremost, the, the biggest challenge is I like to be around people. I enjoyed yeah. teching um, at the actual rehabilitation facility because I get to work with the clients and run around and help them with various tasks, which is it's fun to be on your feet and move around. Um, with that being said, um, working from home is nice because, I mean, when you're teching, you work crazy hours. I mean, you're working like four to midnight. You don't get home until almost one in the morning. You know, that's never fun. Um, whereas, you know, working from home now, it's more, it's a nine to five. I get two consecutive days off that work life balance is a little more trickier. I've just noticed yeah. in the last week, you know, you had recommended to me like getting up and moving to different rooms and stuff like that, Yeah, which can be challenging because you live at a sober living like I do right now, which you have multiple bodies in there and you have to kind of navigate around yeah. who's in the house. Um, but overall it's enjoyable. Um, you know, I don't. I don't have to uh, worry about the monotony of what I'm going to wear today and stuff like <laughs> yeah. that, you yeah. know, so I could kind of just, uh, if it's one of those mornings where you're feeling lazy and you don't feel like showering, that's, that's kosher, so to speak. Hopefully I don't get into that habit. Yeah. You have to <laughs> at least change my mom's rule is you don't wear the same clothes you wore in bed, like yeah. in life. Yeah. You have to change those at least in, even if you go into another pair of PJs. That's like, a good rule to follow. Yeah. That's a general life rule. She's like, you smell like your bed. What does a bed smell like? I don't know, but they they have these sayings. I feel like moms know bed smell or something. That's something yeah. we at this stage in our life don't quite comprehend. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I kind of want to be able to give our viewers a full scope on who are our listeners, a full scope on who you are like at your core. What was your upbringing? Do you think that there was anything majorly that contributed into your later life decisions? Most definitely. So um, I grew up, my father was in the Navy for 31 years. My mother worked real estate on and off. She was more of like a stay-at-home mom, you know, obviously. After my life, you know, really changed around 9-11. Around that time, I was about eight or nine years old. After the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, my father started going on long deployments. He was gone almost nine months every year so I mean there was a period between like the ages of nine and let's say 20 years old 
where my dad was maybe home out of that 10 years, like a cumulative, maybe two. Mm. I mean, it was that he was gone that frequently. And that was kind of in the early 2000s too. That was really before social media and cell phones, you know, we were still using flip phones. So needless to say, communication was very few. Like we were still relying on handwritten letters. So I would maybe speak to my father once a month while he was gone. With that being said, I struggled to look for, I think, approval from other males in my life Mm -hmm. and wanted to be validated that I was, I guess, a man, so to speak. And, you know, mother can only do so much with her son. Right. And when my dad would come home with the trauma he experienced overseas, he was drinking heavily. Not an abusive father, you know, not a raging alcoholic, never put his hands on me or anything like that. But he was a very social, he he drank every night. Right. Socially, so to speak. And so... It's like a 13-year-old, I absorb that as that's what a man does when he's stressed. Right. When a man's stressed, he has a beer. Mm-hmm. When a man's stressed, he it's okay to do that. That's and, and it was even more so because it wasn't like my dad was like a deadbeat alcoholic. Mm-hmm. He was making good money in the military. So in my eyes, it was like, oh, a successful man, you can drink when you come home. Right. And, right. and that can be your priority because you're the breadwinner. And maybe spending time with your family intimately isn't as important because of what you're doing, the sacrifice you're making. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll just kind of carry that into how that led into, I think, my substance abuse. Yeah. But if I could pause really yeah. quick, I think that um, back when, well, first of all, for your dad, thank you for his service. Yeah. I think back when our parents were younger and then their parents when you are the breadwinner, there was a type of sense that you looked the other way with the things that they were doing in their life that were unhealthy. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you were financing the entire family, who's to tell him he's doing anything wrong? No, you know? totally. Yeah. So, yeah, I definitely, I just think that that's crazy because now I feel like we look at things very differently. Like when you see someone drinking every day and it's more like you're more inclined to like intervene it. But like back then, it just wasn't the same system. No, it wasn't. can also relate that to in a weird way, the opioid epidemic. I think Mm -hmm. substance abuse in general wasn't as... Mm -hmm. People weren't as well-versed on substance abuse in general, whether it be alcoholism or coke addiction. You know, it doesn't have to have a defined, you know, substance necessarily a role. Um, But yeah, it was a little more socially acceptable, I think, back then to drink every day. And Mm -hmm. um, especially in the military, because that's like what they do. Like, Mm -hmm. you, you know, that's... It's it's kind of the norm there. All of his buddies did it, you know, and I grew up on military bases. So mm-hmm. all my friends' dads did the same thing. It wasn't like we were, mm-hmm. it was, it's just all we knew. All right. we knew was our dads are going to be gone nine out of 12 months of the year. And then when they're home, they're going to be drinking with their buddies. Mm-hmm. And if you want to kind of have that time with your dad, it's, I mean, it, it might sound bad. And I don't think he had any poor intention, but I mean, he started letting me have a beer with him. Yeah. You know, when I was 14. Yeah. You know, and not like getting drunk or anything. He didn't promote, you know. Yeah. I feel like that's generational, though, too, yeah. and cultural, just depending. Yeah. Like, I think in, um, what is it, Germany, like they have a beer with breakfast. Yeah. They like, start doing like that 11. at a younger age. Yeah. yeah. So they learn how to kind of, they're, I think cultural. their philosophy yeah. is, and their philosophy is you'll learn how to do this the more responsible way. Because you've learned at a younger age and it hasn't mm-hmm. been prohibited for so long. Mm-hmm. So like in America, we prohibit it to 21, which so some kids, when they turn 21, they just go crazy because mm-hmm. they've never been around it, you know, their whole life. It's been so taboo. Right. right. Whereas if you kind of, it's kind of normalized a little more, it could go one of both ways, I think. You know? I think it's, it's really a roll of dice. Yeah, it's really a roll of the dice. Yeah, it can either, it's either going to be like, he started way too young, we shouldn't have done this or like. Yeah, and I think as parents, like they're. I mean, I'm not a parent, but you're always going to judge yourself as a parent later when things aren't perfect. Like, yeah. what could I have done different? But it, the circumstance doesn't matter, totally. you know? Yeah, no, totally. Go a little bit into um, what brought you maybe to your addiction um, okay. and then maybe to recovery as well. Like, you could kind of intersect in. that story. Okay, so, um, you know, it started with normalized drinking at a young age. Um, with that being said too, there was once a time before disclaimer, my father never smoked marijuana in the military. Never did. It's very, they they, they were not cool with that. I mean, my dad was, I also want to say he was very high ranked in the military. He was, I think he retired like in 06, was very well uh, viewed in the military community, even now that he's retired. So anyhow, you know, it started with drinking. 
that becoming kind of normal at a young age. And then obviously weed smoking. When my dad and I would hang out and drink, he would tell me how badly he wishes he could, you know, do this or that before his time in the military. And, you know, he never really told me you can't smoke weed. He did always say at a young age, you know, you don't do heroin, you don't do coke, but like weed and alcohol, it was always very laissez-faire. Mm-hmm. And also just as long as your mother doesn't know, it's okay. Which is a little weird because I'll tie into this later why that's a little weird with my mom. But um, yeah, so I went through high school, never really had my dad there to kind of, and it would break my heart for him to hear this in a way. And and I think he he knows deep down and I just want to make it clear he was a great father, but I never had a male role model really outside of, you know, just making money. Mm -hmm. So I never really knew who I was because I didn't know what good character traits define a man or a young, you know, a young adolescent becoming a man into his teens. So I went through high school just trying to fit in with everybody. I never really fit in anywhere in particular. We moved every three years Mm -hmm. and to different military bases. So the second I got close with people, I had more separation anxiety with getting close with people because I just was so used to moving I went to seven different high schools seven different high schools Mm -hmm. by the time I went to go start school like college I had already been smoking weed daily was already doing coke in high school because I found that I fit in best with the other kids who had some parental issues which were the kids doing coke and stuff and partying all the time yeah that was my niche I was always athletic but not athletic enough to be like a baller I was always (laughs) you know I was always I was always good at guitar, but never good enough to be like a musician. Um, I never, I was, I was, I was good at everything, great at nothing. Is it possible that it was maybe just commitment to the long term? Totally. Um, The idea of having to be in like a niche friend group, get close to people. Maybe you wanted to shake it up even? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, Just never... I guess never finding a passion in life. I just, right. You know, and, and the thing that I was most passionate about mm-hmm. even since like 15 was not feeling. Right. That became my passion. My passion became not feeling sadness that my, my father was gone. Mm-hmm. And during all this too, my mom was an alcoholic um, while my dad was gone. She was drinking heavily. So, I mean, even her influence, she wasn't around, you know, she was present, but she, you could count on it by 8 p.m. every night, six nights a week, she was going to be intoxicated. Mm-hmm. My older brother and her had issues. You would think like your older brother would kind of fill that role, but he struggled with his own identity with, you know, being gay and he was trying to find himself. So he didn't really have a lot of time to kind of mentor me. And we were so different. Right. By the time I moved out of the house and became 18, I had no foundation of who I was. Mm-hmm. I had no idea who I wanted to be. Like I said, all I knew was I liked not feeling. Right. Now I have a just a, a follow up question. Are you a person that you would say feels like high intensity of emotions? Um like do you dwindle and, and um get stuck on certain feelings for like maybe obsessive amounts of time or, or not really? You know, I am diagnosed bipolar, so I think that kind of okay. you would think yeah. that would tie into it. But um now that I'm coming up, you know, almost on two years in recovery not so much anymore so it's kind of hard for me to remember how I was right right you know so I I like to say oh no not at all but then if I really use my critical thinking and I look back yeah I would get hung up on a lot of little yeah I mean granted there was so much going on that was like abnormal you know what I mean but and and to cope with all of that but then if you also have like the high intensity of emotion as well I can imagine you know that's why that was your main focus and passion because having to numb everything you know yeah, uh, just curiosity. Now, that you put, now that you put it that way then definitely um yeah uh, i had a intense emotional feeling of abandonment and loneliness mm-hmm. and um y- you know even like my friend's dads that would come home from deployment that maybe didn't see as much action or maybe they had they call it sea duty so it's like your dad essentially gets to still stay on the base at home he's like more administrative which is mm-hmm. not what my father did he was a little more hands-on um, in the tactical military game. But, mm-hmm. like, I was always so envious of, like, my friends that had their dads around still. And yeah. I never learned how to process those emotions. I never did. I wish that... Was there any type of support for your family when your dad was in the military? Like, any groups, any uh, community-based things? or That became more prevalent after I was already out of the house. You mm-hmm. know, like, in the from, let's say, 2000 to 2010, that wasn't as prevalent. The whole... 
support for PTSD and veterans awareness became a little later, like as my dad was out of the military. And even then the person that would be responsible to take me to that stuff would have been my mother Mm -hmm. who was grieving in her own way, you Mm -hmm. know, um, being married to someone that's home two months a year. I can only imagine what that was like. Right. So I never know. I was never really around any resources like that. And just another question, because, you know, you're a male. Do you feel growing up having emotions, it was frowned upon for you? What was like your experience with that? Being told things like, you know, I remember um, it's almost going to bring me to tears right now. The moment that set in that my emotions are not necessarily valid and that I need to quote unquote man up Mm -hmm. was when I was nine, nine or 10. And my dad, I was, we were on an airstrip and my father was about to go home. He was about to go board a plane to go to Afghanistan for his, what, third time at this point. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, let's not even, I haven't even touched on the fact, you know, you don't know if he's coming home, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, this the could fear. Be the, so mm-hmm. the fear that this could be the last time you see your dad. Um, but, um, I remember him kneeling down and, uh, you know, I apologize. And, um, don't you know, I was sorry. almost, you know, I was crying and, uh, you know, he like put his hand on my shoulder not a very huggy dad, not a very kissy father, you know, and he's got to be tough, you know, he's, he's around his other soldiers and, mm-hmm. you know, he wants, he's also like their leaders. So he puts his hand on my shoulder and says, you know, it's your time to be the man of the house now while I'm gone. And, uh, at like nine years old, that's, yeah, it's, it's very overwhelming. And, um, and it always was confusing for me too, because I had an older brother. Um, but my brother had a different father. It's my mm-hmm. half brother, but we grew up together. So, that was just a hard pill to swallow, you know, like being told at nine years old, you know, and I, and I think my father had good intentions. He was trying to kind of amp me up. Right. But there was like, there was also this weird dynamic where he would treat me kind of like he would treat his soldiers where like he would try yeah. to father me in a way that he, all he knew how to do, which was, you know, handle his, his subordinates and, and tell them to be tough and um, how they're going to make it through this. Cause I'm sure he had 18, mm-hmm. 19 year old kids that were crying to him and deployment, you know, so all he knew was the military kind of approach mm-hmm. of, you know, and this was the older kind of military too. It's changed now in 2023. Yeah. They're a little more open-minded, <laughs> but this was back when it was like, we're yeah. tough. This is what we do. Yeah. Um, your family's got to be strong. And um, yeah, that was a, that was a very, it's just pressure. It's, it's a lot of pressure. It's pressure. We talked about it when I was interviewing Jess too, that inner child exercise and stuff. And actually you, I remember you sharing kind of similar have you done like any type of inner child prior to that meeting? No. And I've, um, I'm in therapy now, you know, and even mm-hmm. then it took me a year into recovery to start doing therapy. I'm just now learning how to process a lot of my emotions, even at the age of 31 for so long was kind of taught that they're temporary. They go away and it's mm-hmm. a matter of willpower. You know, right. even my parents approach to my addiction was willpower. Mm-hmm. You know, you're choosing this. And, and I agree to a certain, certain standpoint you know, you are choosing to put a needle in your arm, but um, there's clearly there's some gray in between. It's not that black right. and white. It's not as simple. No, it's not as simple as that. They they now are a little more knowledgeable of that now that mm-hmm. they've, they 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 see how many families this is affecting. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, yeah, I um, never processed emotions. I, I the reason I was asking too is because like the point of inner child is like finding a way to give yourself the love and the parenting like at that time because it's almost like you had to go from kid to parent and there's developmental years there where you need the parental figure and for the emotional intelligence and stuff and for your understanding it's kind of like you have to go back and now like love yourself like be a little softer with yourself you no, know yeah no and I, and I am now you know, mm-hmm. especially now that I'm a father mm-hmm. and I have a wife. And, you know, one thing now that I'm a little older and wiser, so to speak, that, you know, sometimes I think whatever you want to refer to him as God, Allah, Hashem, higher power. Um, I think he put me through that in a way or not necessarily put me through it, but it opened my eyes to how I want to be as a parent. Right. In a weird way, I've, you know, I can learn from my parents' mistakes. I could either, there was a point where I let that define me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not loved. They they care more about their image than me and this and that. And I'm going to go get high over it. And then eventually, you know, a couple of years ago when I my daughter was born, there was like a fork in the road where I could either continue this narrative, be a selfish parent that puts themselves first in a way and um, self-medicates with their emotions in front of their child. Mm-hmm. And I can continue to, you know, use drugs to deal with the stresses of life 
in marriage or I could start becoming the dad that I want to become. Right. So like I said, once again, my father taught me a lot of good, admirable qualities Mm -hmm. too, you know, going to work every day, being attentive to time, you know, keeping things in order. But the emotional side, I just never learned. Yeah, I actually have this like weird theory too that like every generation serves its purpose. Yeah. You no, know, no. so like I'm I'm a millennial. Um so like I think of the Gen Zers and I know some people will be like, "Oh, they're, you know, so emotional. They're so like that's kind of like the argument." Mm-hmm. But like thank God in a way they are because because of all their noise and, and the like let's cancel this and that's not okay and it makes you more aware of like the gravity of the things you say and um, just like understanding mental health addiction like I think if they didn't come around with their storm like yeah. a lot of that wouldn't be looked at so you know that's like their purpose in society so like I know a lot of times it's like we all judge each other's generation, but like every generation serves a different purpose. Totally. You know? Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. And I think eventually it'll hopefully all kind of come together and we can find a balance in between. Like we're trying to heal right now. we're trying to heal. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You were sharing a little bit about being a parent. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about your child? My child? Yes. Okay. Girl, boy, age. Um, Madeline. Uh, Madeline Ayla. Ayla is her Hebrew name. It means uh, strong like an oak tree. Oh, strong I love like that. an oak tree. Because, um, you know, it's crazy. <laughs> like, I never cried in addiction, but when I talk about things like my daughter, it brings me to tears every day. It's She's just the biggest blessing in my life outside of my wife, who's stood through me through so much over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, but my daughter, yeah, she's two. She's rambunctious. She's filled with life, filled with energy. I see nothing but great things for her. Mm-hmm. I, in a weird way, I kind of can live through her, not in the sense where like she yeah. does what I do, but like I, I want to see her accomplish things that maybe I sacrificed and never accomplished because right. of my addiction. Yeah. Um, I also want to see her. Um, I just want to see her, you know, conquer her own world. You know, right. yeah. I don't. I don't. I'm not ever going to push her into a certain religion. You know that I follow. I want her to find herself. There are some worries with that, I think, in our society. I do like the freedom that I think women are having now in these days and, mm-hmm. and taking control of their bodies and, and having their own, you know, power. But I do worry. I, I care about her so much and I just want to see her become a strong, independent woman and, yeah, like yeah. I said, conquer her own world. Yeah. She's, yeah. My, she's my favorite. Yeah, she's my favorite. She's my favorite child. <laughs> yeah, she's my favorite and only child. Yeah. When you have a better understanding of yourself and as you're raising your daughter and your wife too, like you guys are all like navigating together, she will come to a place where I think the values that you value, she'll just naturally come to a lot of them. And I think stressing it or trying to put taboo on anything is the worst mistake any parent makes ever. You know what Carol Mason said? What Carol your Mason parents, said. she said, when you're a parent... Your child is born through you and not from you. Okay. If that makes yeah. sense. No, it does. Because they're not an extension of you. They're they're supposed to pass through and they're supposed to go on to the world and pass through life like as an independent. And I thought it was so cute. No, I, I loved that. Definitely. I think I think there's a part of a mother and a father in every child. You yeah. know, whether they like to admit it or not. Yeah. I'm already seeing flashes of who she's going to be. Even yeah. at two years old, I'm already seeing... The kind of quirky little, you know. Oh, she's funny. Yeah, she's, yeah. she's so goofy, and um, I love and 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 I love that, and I just mm-hmm. um, it's great to be sober and be able to be able to think about stuff like that, you know. Things right now aren't where I want them to be in my home life in recovery. Just wanted another disclaimer: like this takes time. Like, yeah, it, no, it does. I, th- I see a lot of people come in into treatment, and they expect their wife and daughter or their families to be back together in thirty days. Or even six months. And like, this can take years, dude. This is not, you know, <laughs> this is not, uh, I have a bad habit of tapping my foot. Um, this this takes time. And, it does. It and, does. And I'm having to learn so much patience. And um, I'm sure we'll touch on that more as we yeah. talk, you know. Candid, candid question. How often on a bad day do you say this is the worst day of my life? Oh, um... Like you'll forget all the progress and everything else and your worst day, like on a bad day. At least at least a few times a week. There's yeah. At least a few times <laughs> like, a week. Ah. And it usually is like on my days off. So like today. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like when I'm at work and I'm dealing with all these emails and uh, making plans for my days off, I don't uh, think about that as much, you know. But when I have that downtime, 
It's like yeah. that's when you start getting the shoulda, woulda, couldas, and yeah, like my life's falling that, apart, and, and I'm not doing everything I should be doing. Mm-hmm. I'm not. So I kind of right now have like a weird like battle brewing within me with productivity and am I doing enough as a father and a husband or a friend? And mm-hmm. it can be hard to have moments of downtime. Yeah, I I struggle with that, and I always bring it up with my therapist too. Just the downtime, like really, I feel like it affects your mental health when you don't properly use the tool because you're like oh i need to rest i'm allowed to rest yeah and then it's like you turn off everything that you know is right and then like you're like well i'm just gonna do this and then i'm eating a bunch of junk which probably makes me crazy as is and i then struggle I'm like, with that yeah recovery more than anything yeah okay okay let's talk a little bit so you said you have over two years coming up on two years and coming January. up on two okay with awesome. a with a little blip in there a little mishap um so to speak yeah coming up on two years in recovery so i guess you're wanting to know how i found cfc yeah is that (laughs) he's reading my computer is that the question (laughs) i do have eyes okay so (laughs) there was a lot that led up to me ending up in the state of new jersey i'm from jacksonville florida and savannah georgia Mm -hmm. i say from like i said i moved so much as a kid but the last six seven years i've lived predominantly in the south you know, I'm not going to get too much into my addiction. I, I That's like the least favorite part of everyone's story for me, especially when I go to meetings and they just are like, and I did this and I did that for this many years. Yeah. I just, I, I'm just not ex- too in, interested in that. Like it's yeah. in the sadness. I think in just, early recovery, I was important. attracted yeah. to it. Yeah, totally. And then like as time went on, I'm like, Dude, I know. Okay, yeah, I, I did it, it too. Everyone did it. more fentanyl than the next person. Yeah. And, and everyone, you know, got more diseases than the next person but anyhow so i went through my 20s heroin addiction turned into fentanyl crack and meth I, those were my main drugs of choice benzos the, the, the hard stuff you know that All real the, the real stuff. the good stuff so being from the south meth is a little more yeah prevalent a little here. more prevalent mm-hmm. you know they like that um, so they like that tina in the dirty south was it just the bottom of the barrel junkie everyone has these glorious stories of how they were selling quarter pounds and kilos and no dude i was like just trying to get 40 dollars a day for my habit just bottom of the barrel nothing glorious about it i was over a little of a year clean march of this year mm-hmm. i was having my memory was coming back from all those overdoses you know they kill so many brain cells but after about a year of sobriety done the 12 steps at this point i was in a program in georgia called sober living america mm-hmm. bigger in the south but they help a lot of people they take you in for free and um, it's more of like a work program. They drop you off at warehouses. Like every a therapeutic day. kind of community. Not even no. Like it's just <laughs> not even not even no. Uh, bless their heart, as we say in the south. Bless they their heart. they have good intentions, and but they, it's more of like a. Uh, well, this is very suiting for a Jewish guy to say, but work will set you free kind of approach. Okay. You just need a job and you need to learn how to function in society and that will get you sober. They take you to AA meetings. As someone who's like a bottom of the barrel junkie, that was such a blessing. Yeah. So like have a job again. Mm-hmm. And like that's their approach. Anyhow, I was at that program for a year. I started developing some really bad like PTSD symptoms. Mm-hmm. I was, um, at this point I went and got my own job. I was working um, for a homeless shelter in Savannah, peer support specialist. I began reliving trauma of my time being homeless and hotel hopping right. by working with those clients. Even with a year sober, I don't think I was mentally prepared for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it I started to relive. I see, started seeing couples that come in that were around my wife and I's age that mm-hmm. track marks everywhere. You could just see how down and out they were. So I started seeing my wife and I. Th- so a lot of trauma started coming up. Yeah. What was that, Kim? I tried to burp off. Classic. You should have just done it in the mic. <laughs> no. In true Kim fashion. Kim's a savage listener, so you know that. Don't be fooled by her her nice, charming voice. Anyhow. So that trauma started coming back. And um, I... <laughs> you got to... And that's the other thing. You got to have fun in recovery. You got to laugh. So got to laugh. Got to drink coffee. Those are like two pillars to recovery. I had got health insurance through my work. So this whole time, like in the dirty South, they don't do all this free health insurance stuff. Like yeah. you go uninsured... You don't see therapists. Like, they, they just don't have those resources. Yeah. They just don't. So people up here don't realize how blessed they are. The amount of resources up here in these more blue states, it just is what it is. Not that I lean to one political affiliation or the other, but... For it, mental health, the for blue mental states health, are better. Yeah, yeah, for mental health in red mm-hmm. states in the deep south. If you don't have insurance, better find God quick, son, because... That's your Yeah, option. well, that's why in a lot of the red states, they have the, like, Christian... And I went to those, even as a Jewish man. Went to two Christian rehabs. 
What was your overall experience? Were they? Do you feel that they could be dangerous? Or no, I thought they were amazing. Okay, I thought even though they knew I was Jewish, they never forced the New Testament onto me or anything like that. They mm-hmm. and, and even then, like people don't realize, Christianity and Judaism are very, very similar. Hand in, very hand yeah. in hand. There's some. There's some cultural practices that are different, but the the general idea of treating others the way you want to be treated, one God. Lead with love. Lead with love. uh, Saying your prayers. No vengeance. No vengeance. Being forgiving. Those are all there. A charity. Doing acts of kindness. But, you know, I had, so like I said, I had to go to those places that took you in for free. Mm -hmm. That's all I had. So, I mean, I was in the middle of nowhere in Georgia, like at these places. uh, And, um, but they were actually, you know, they were long term too, four to six months, which I think is it's hard to find. And I think that's a good amount of time to be. Yeah. And so, yeah, no, I have nothing like, you know, I have no bad feelings towards them. Obviously I think there's a lot of areas in recovery. They miss only focusing on a religious aspect of it, mm-hmm. but they, they serve a purpose. They save a lot of lives. A mm-hmm. lot of people become very spiritual, even religious. I'm not afraid to say being religious. It's not a bad thing. I think there's a weird con. Yeah. I burped. Anyhow, <laughs> I think there's a weird, like, People are afraid to use that term religious, but like, yeah. like it's a bad thing to be religious. It was a good experience. With that being said, that trauma hit me. I was working at the shelter a year sober. I got health insurance for my job and I thought it was a good idea to go see a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Get this get this medicine I've been needing on mm-hmm. a different in a different way. So I went to go meet with my doctor. He's an older gentleman, and I told him, you know, I was a recovering heroin addict. I shared all this information with him, and he thought that I was cured. Mm-hmm. I was a year clean. And since, you know, opiates were my main addiction and I was having these and I was having panic attacks. Like I was at work blacking out mm-hmm. in the bathroom. It was crazy. He thought it was a good idea to prescribe me Ativan. Uh, so he prescribed yeah. me 90 Ativans for the month. 90 like, and I've looked it up like the, the ratio. So like a two, a two milligram Ativan is equivalent to like a one milligram Xanax for people that don't can't yeah. put two and two together. It's a very yeah. powerful, it's a powerful drug. Yeah. Ativan's a benzo. It's a, it's a powerful drug. And I had convinced myself that, oh, well, a doctor's prescribing it and it's not Oxycontin mm-hmm. and it's not, you know, Vicodin. Um, benzos were never really my forte. And I was having these panic attacks that he knew what was best for me. I took them for about three days mm-hmm. and went off the deep end. Like mm-hmm. I do not mix well with benzos at all i found out in that three days i was taking them as prescribed and was like it was like taking bars i mean yeah. I, I was showing up to work late within a few days i went off the deep end i started getting suicidal thoughts because i it really messed with me because i started thinking like i'm just going to be insane forever like right. here i am thinking i have this pillar of a year sober um and i can't even take a medication that normal people can take like mm-hmm. i can't the thing that's going to help me with deal with this trauma this medication I don't even, my brain's so fucked up that Mm -hmm. I can't even take this. And that just really messed with me. And at the same time too, I was having some issues with my mom. I don't remember what she said, but my wife said she was saying some terrible things to me about, you know, who I was as a person still. So anyhow, I checked myself into a psych hospital and I um, went there for three, four five days, however long. When I got out, my family was scared. A lot of people were like I said, there were some blackouts in that three days. I don't right. really know what happened. Yeah. I know that I was saying crazy stuff to my wife. She was so worried she flew down to Georgia. Yeah. When I got out of the hospital, she was there at six in the morning, standing outside. You weren't mixing and you were blacking out? I don't really know. I mean, I mean, yeah, I don't know. So a side effect of, so a side effect for people that don't use drugs or don't understand benzos, you can have blackout periods where you don't remember anything and you usually tend to act very out of character, like stealing, like things like that can happen. Yeah, exactly. So I Mm -hmm. ended up actually, I did something. It later (laughs) turned out that I gave some to a guy at my sober living, which is not cool. I mean, I'm not. Nothing yeah. I'm proud of, but I was blacked out mm-hmm. or I, it maybe wasn't even, they just said that some, someone got some of those from you. That's kind of how they worded it. So mm-hmm. I don't know if I just left the bottle out carelessly and I caused someone else to relapse, which is really unfortunate. The sober living was like, you can't come back here for two weeks. Like you got to go to a detox to get off this right. van, which was really hard. Cause I'm like, dude, I'm a year clean. I didn't really go, I didn't go put a needle in my arm. This doctor prescribed me this. Right. I got out of the, the psychiatric place, um, now that I think about it, no, I was there for closer to like two weeks. They held me for a while because mm-hmm. I, 
that it only took a few days with those benzos. I really went off the deep end. I think they also interfered with like my bipolar medication. Right. So like I really was kind of like in psychosis. It wasn't. Yeah, you have to be careful mixing meds. Yeah, no. And this doctor yeah. was very old school. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was, I'm not going to say he had bad intentions, but I don't think he really knew addiction like maybe a younger doctor would know. Mm-hmm. And like how these medications can affect an addict's brain. Right. Um. So... I got out and my wife and I went to a hotel because we were figuring out, which was traumatic in its sense. We lived in hotels for like a year while we were mm-hmm. using and now here we are. I mean, Doing you're sober, we're in a hotel yeah. again. She's away from our daughter who's up with my in-laws in New York. And we're like, I don't know what to do anymore. I don't really want to go back to this program. I'm embarrassed. I don't even want to show my face at work. I ended up, my wife and I were looking. I wanted to be closer to my wife and daughter. They're all the way up in New York. Mm-hmm. I'm all the way down in Georgia. It just wasn't feasible anymore. We were seeing each other in that year. We saw each other maybe twice. And it was mm-hmm. it was really hard. And I realized that that might have been part of the trauma that I was experiencing. We called around. My wife and I, bless, bless her heart. I mean, she cares so much. I was so broken after this incident. I just didn't really have much oomph in me to like do anything for a couple days, but she made like 60 calls and yeah. she called every like sober living mm-hmm. from South Jersey to, you know, Buffalo, New York, anywhere mm-hmm. closer to New York city for me to go move into. Everyone we called was like, we have to meet you in person before we accept you. Uh, you need $1,200, whether it was a financial thing or like it just a logistic, mm-hmm. like, dude, I, I can't afford to like come fly to, whatever new jersey just to be told yeah you can't move in we don't accept you right um so cfc we got a hold of you guys i don't know if it was you or Aly- i think initially Alyssa, then me then, it okay. was both and um yeah out of all the places and i'm not exaggerating when i say we probably called 40 or 50 places cfc mm-hmm. was like you know they did a phone interview with me and you guys were like we'll give you a shot you know come mm-hmm. on up we have a bed for you yeah such a blessing yeah, I remember you were on, I think, speaker. I was in the car with Liz, and um, she's like, he sounds so nice. I came up here to CFC um, to be closer to my wife and daughter who were in the city, and um, that's kind of led me to where I'm at sitting right now. That's how I ended awesome. up here. Would you say religion plays a heavy role on your life, on your recovery? It definitely does. So I grew up knowing in my family mm-hmm. we had ethnic judaism we were mm-hmm. it's an ethno religion a lot of people don't differentiate the fact that it's it's in a sense it's like a race but it's also a religion you mm-hmm. can be jewish without practicing you can practice judaism without mm-hmm. it necessarily being in your bloodline so i grew up and we never really did a lot of religious stuff we grew up in a, where i primarily grew up there was no synagogues so we would primarily um do kind of a lot of Christian activities just because my mom wanted me to have some kind of religious foundation. Yeah. As I was incarcerated and got locked up through later on in my addiction before I got sober, I became religious mm-hmm. just in a Jewish aspect. Mm-hmm. I just found the Judaism. Right. Um, when I first got clean, I ran into a divine. Um, there's a term in Judaism called kismet, mm-hmm. which is uh I guess you could say like divine intervention. Right. I like, like two souls meeting for, you know, God's plan. And I met this guy, Benjamin shout out Ben W. I met him at AA in Savannah and he had his yarmulke on and I had my, uh, Magin David and Mastara David on. And, uh, he came up to me and said, do you just, are you Jewish or do you just wear that? Cause I mean, there's a lot of people that wear crosses that aren't Christian, right? you know? Yeah. So, and I was yeah. like, no, I am Jewish. You know, I don't really practice. And he, so grateful to meet him. He's an Orthodox Jew, a little less Orthodox these days, but uh, he took me under his wing, started calling me every morning and doing mm-hmm. Jewish prayers with me that I never really learned. Both my grandparents are dead. They would have probably been the ones to teach me that. Right. Um, and I just had a sense of belonging for the first mm-hmm. time, like a sense of community that wasn't drug addicts. Mm-hmm. And I started going to shul, which is synagogue with him and um, his family invited me over for Passover. And these are things I had done growing up, you know, a little bit, but I had never really got well versed in them mm-hmm. um, and the meaning behind a lot of it. And my life just just blossomed through it, you know, and I just I felt a sense of purpose. And I was like, you know, if I can have the self-discipline to not eat certain things, I can have the self-discipline to not do mm-hmm. drugs. It was yeah. just a whole lifestyle change for right. me. And I wanted that. And I saw how happy his family was and just how like pure they seemed obviously no one's perfect they all have their i'm not advocating for judaism over anything else i'm just saying for me i found such a sense of belonging and they say too like they teach that in judaism because a lot of jewish people are ashamed of being jewish 
um, for stereotypical reasons and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a Jew, when a Jewish soul finds his way back to following the practice, it's just a rabbis love it. It's a very beautiful mm-hmm. thing. So like I went and told rabbis I was in recovery and they just loved it. Like they mm-hmm. would love to see like a young Jewish man find his way back to the faith. And yeah. um, it's just been a huge part of my recovery. I have, I have a lot of good friends that are Jewish. I have a lot of good friends that aren't Jewish. Just the ones that are Jewish, I connect with them on a different level in a way. Right. No, you know what's funny? In my head, I'm repeating a phrase I remember from when I'm younger, and I think, I think it's something. Let's hear it. Arakator denai alahelam malakalam. Yeah, that is essentially um, Elohenu. Whenever you hear Elohenu Adonai, that's just Father and God. Yeah. So that prayer, from what I just heard, is I know I didn't pronounce it all. Probably, no, right? I, and and I could be wrong. I'm still new with my Hebrew. I know, I know my Hebrew prayers. Can I transliterate them to the best ability? No, but that's part of learning. And you know, yeah. I learned I learned that was okay. But I think essentially what you just said was like God give me strength. Yeah, I I actually. You know, I'm Christian. Yeah. So sometimes when I would do, there was this Bible study group. I was actually still getting high at the time I went to the Bible study group. Classic. I, I remember when I surrendered, like the day that I surrendered in my head that I started detoxing at home, I like fully felt the yeah. Holy Spirit on me. And um, I, there was this one girl there that actually is, she speaks Hebrew. So she, I loved learning Hebrew mixed with the Bible because the correct pronunciation, the correct yeah. names, like uh, Yahweh, uh, not uh, Jesus, right? Hashem. Hashem. That is yeah, like yeah, the yeah. most commonly, believe it or not, there's over a hundred ways to what refer did you to God say in you, Judaism. What did you say we call him? <laughs> what was your joke the other day? You're like, we over here call him. Oh, uh, <laughs> there's a Yiddish phrase for uh, Jesus that uh, we call him Yoshki. Yoshi. Yoshi, Yoshi is what we call Jesus. That's like a Jewish slang for Jesus. Yoshi. It's kind of like. Is it like an insult on the low? <laughs> I think it depends who's saying it. I think like an ultra, if you hear it coming from like an ultra Orthodox Hasidic Jew, uh, it's a little yeah. demeaning. I'm sure. Because his that. name is Yeshua. So yeah, it's Yeshua. like to, okay, to refer to someone that's someone's Messiah mm-hmm. by his nickname, mm-hmm. I think inherently is a little disrespectful yeah you know what i'm saying yeah like it's like referring to the president like let's say a president's name is ronald and you call him ronnie yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) i get it yeah yeah actually the full all the way back original word and it was supposed to the reason that it was such a complicated name is it was supposed to be hard to say like a breath of air that's a real thing yes so even and when you say it you almost meditate to the sound of it whatever it is but i forget what the heck it is that's a real thing with kabbalah and um kabbalism is like jewish mysticism Mm -hmm. each word has like its own energy and meaning or each letter and how it vibrates with the universe. Yeah, it's cool. So like when you say God's name and whatever whatever term you want to mm-hmm. use for it, it like vibrates and he hears it. That's yeah. their that's their belief on it, from my understanding. Well, Hindu, I believe as well, does similar like uh Buddhism, like yeah, Om. Yeah, yeah like and the vibrations it's, yeah, it's are, they, the they sync with the universe, like, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Really cool to think about. Yeah. And so yeah, yeah, there's like context matters. Like I think when you go back totally. to history, context matters. I'm not a big organized religion person. I love Bible study, as you know, and I like praying and just practicing it in my life. History, a lot of the books inter- intertwine, whether it's the, um, why am I drawing a blank? What What is the Muslim book? The Quran. The, the Quran. Holy Quran. Yeah, so whether you're doing the Quran, um, the, what's yours? There's, people try to sum it up as just the Torah, but yeah. uh, we have the Talmud and... Um, yeah. yeah. Historically, though, they all align. So like yeah, there's yeah. just like a lot of cool truth in that. And I think when you're like diving into religion, I don't think it's always necessary to find your home right away because you won't until yeah, you yeah. find your placement of what you develop with your religion, yeah. how far you're willing to go. And then I think in general with every religion, we all have our sectors. And like in the Bible, they they reference that um, the body of Christ, the people they're uh, like organs. They're comparable to organs. So they all have different functions and, and serve different points. So you need to like have respect for the fact that that person's version of their religion is going to be a little different than yours because they're not going to serve the same people and the same purpose. Totally. And this idea of versions is yeah. huge. So 
even in Judaism, there's, you know, Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, conservative, reform. Mm -hmm. I'm somewhere in between reformed and conservative at this point in my Mm -hmm. life. But, um, yeah, I think people try to label everything as just cut and blank and black and white. But there's so much room for individuality. And um, And there's so much, like, that we don't know. And there's so So, like, how could you be so hard on your thing and you don't know? Yeah. Yeah, That's the whole point of faith. Yeah. Yeah. Unknown. (laughs) <laughs> unknown faith in the yeah. unknown so i think religion's super important or spirituality, spirituality got, you gotta find something bigger than yourself it's that, a little more like pc term these days that people people yeah, run from yeah. the r word they run from the g word like if you say higher power it seems to fall on ears differently than god if you say religion it falls on different ears than spirituality For a little when i was getting clean here because yeah. i'd randomly just throw the j word around yeah oh, the j word <laughs> <laughs> which is common and that's immediately that's cool, so uncomfortable like yeah. and i'm like listen i'm not a bible thumper it's yeah. just like jesus is my god but yeah. like you know whatever something and you run with it and then you're able to talk about it the whole point of you following your religion you believe in it you're passionate about it Definitely. your word spreading the word that's the point of it and it, for me too it's just it's five sense of culture mm-hmm. and identity i spoke about that earlier when we were talking i had no identity Mm-hmm. I growing up, I just was trying to fit in with everyone. Now I, I know where I fit in. I know where yeah. I feel comfortable. And I know when I'm with other Jewish people, we have like-minded views. And um, yeah, that's good to have. Obviously, yeah. there's one extreme to the next. That can be a bad thing if you take it too far. Like you, Yeah. You well, Christians to too. Yeah, I, now you're separated from your family to an extent. I know you do get to see them, mm-hmm. but there's a little bit of a long distance aspect there. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about one what it's been like like maybe benefits negatives things going on how long you've been in cfc kind of separated and then two then how do you navigate the communication with your wife and how's that going yeah that's 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 the most challenging part of my life right now so my wife and daughter live in uh manhattan with my in-laws i live here somewhere in central jersey i think jersey jersey uh central jersey um it's about Let's see. For me to take the train to them, it takes about an hour, hour and a half to get to them, which isn't bad at all. The hardest part, obviously, being separated is just being separated. You know, like I want my family unit to be together so badly. You know, I want us to have our own place. And um, every I mean, I can't imagine what husband or father doesn't want that. You know, like I'm missing some valuable times with my daughter. Mm-hmm. I, I missed her first steps. I saw them through video. She's speaking now to a certain extent. I can't understand it that well because, you know, my I have to ask my wife what she's saying because my wife knows because she's around her every day. Right. But it, to me, it's like she's speaking Japanese. I'm like, well, speak English. God dang it. <laughs> but, um, yes. With that being said, there's one thing she says I always know what it is, and that's Dada. So Aww. even though we have this time apart, yeah. she knows me as Dada. When we video, and that's what I meant. So God... You know, my higher power, as a child, my father was gone all the time. We couldn't talk. You know, we didn't Mm -hmm. have that. Although I didn't really learn how to deal with it in a healthy way, I ended up using drugs and alcohol. Right. Now that I see what that caused, I can deal with this separation with Mm -hmm. my own family. I'm able to handle it a lot better than my wife is Mm -hmm. because I grew up with separation being the norm, being geographically not together. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a little hardened by that. So, but now with the technology we have, we can video chat every night. My daughter gets to see my face. She knows who I am. We get to see each other a couple times a week, at least once. Um, They were just down on Saturday. Um, We're going to see each other for Thanksgiving. So it's challenging. It's a little harder for my wife. She's living with her parents, which no kid really, you know, that's not ideal for everyone. You know, you want to be your own person. And I have times I struggle with it. I mean, I manage one of our sober living houses, deal with a lot of guys that act like little babies sometimes. (laughs) And that's... Like, I always tell my wife, too. I'm like, don't you think I'd rather be with my wife and daughter than, like, living in a house with seven dudes at the age of 31? So it's challenging. You know, it's hard to be apart. But we're in marriage counseling right now. And even our marriage counselor thinks it's a good idea what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Because I want to reach that two-year mark with no... Blip or anything. Exactly. Also, financially, it's an expensive world we live in. Yeah. Um, I just got my promotion at work. I'll be making some more money. And CFC is awesome about uplifting people to the next level. I just want to say that too. Most sober livings, it's just like a means to an end. Like you're just... Yeah, it's always a stepping stone with no real step in there. Yeah, with no real step in there. Whereas CFC Mm -hmm. gives me that opportunity, especially as being a house manager, 
And um, so right now our move is set for March. Mm -hmm. That's our goal. March, Mm -hmm. which will be a year at CFC. Mm -hmm. I know you had suggested and recommended be here for a year and take it from there. Yeah. And um, I just started individual therapy like I have tomorrow. I think I should have some of that under my belt before we go make this move happen. Yeah. Um, I still have a lot of growing to do. So does my wife. We're sacrificing for the greater good right now. Yeah. Saving money. Yes, it's hard being apart from one another. But it's like if we rush this, and I always tell this to people, like my next relapse, I just know yeah. It's going to be my last. Yeah. Like with the nature of fentanyl addiction. I think that in general, if you know the drug game right now, like myself and you do, yeah. um, and you consider in your brain that you could go have a relapse, it's a suicide it's quest. A suicide. Totally. It's like completely give up on everything and I'm willing to die right now for exactly. this. Exactly. You know? And I just don't want to rush this mm-hmm. move and deal with the stresses of living together and us not getting along but we also have help too we have a lot of help like her parents are there to help with the baby mm-hmm. um, we're not paying for child care there's a lot of benefits to us being apart right yeah. now it just comes with a little bit of a sacrifice it's it's not ideal but it's I yeah, think it's necessary it's chess you know like yeah. all these decisions every decision you make when you rush a move like you're more likely to not get the result you're looking for no, totally. so um and the other thing i always tell people too like Uh, A lot of people tend to move out when they're uncomfortable, like when they're really like fed up sick. I'm like, sit through that. And when you have peace with your discomfort, then move out. It's a lot better to make (laughs) a next step in life when you have a peace in your mind than animosity. Like, I'm out of here. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm tired of this. The the toilet's always dirty. I'm I'm like, I always try to get like whenever I have thoughts like that, I'm like, dude, you there was one time you didn't have even have a toilet to use. Yeah. You didn't have a, you didn't know where you were going to shower yeah. that day. Yeah. Got to be humble and remember that. Stuff. Yes. You have to remember. Yeah. That's why sometimes I do agree with like the, the model of AANA where I don't necessarily need to repeat that I'm an addict every day, but I need to remember that I came from a place that was not, um, the humble beginnings. And that's why I actually, <laughs> yeah, no, and I do enjoy for the AANA thing. Um, here at CFC, we obviously work smart recovery, which is, you know, I find I like yeah. to take bits and pieces from everything, but like beginners meetings to see the pain. It sounds messed up, but like to hear the it pain, reminds you. it reminds yeah. you of where I'll be at best. Yeah. Where you'll be at best because yeah. where you're most likely to be is six feet under. We both work in recovery. We're both, you know, recovery uh, professionals. You know, you know what I'm saying? We just saving lives on the front lines of, front lines of this <laughs> disease of addiction, uh, saving lives. So. Um, I think that keeps it fresh for yeah. us inherently. We yeah. don't. So I find myself I don't go to as many meetings as I used to, um, yeah. Because I kind of work a meeting every day. Like I'm literally. Yeah, I think the therapy is the main part for us. Mm-hmm. It's hard to talk about your own recovery when your recovery is so interlooped with other, other people. And then you go to share way. at a meeting, and you're like, "Oh, that person from Discovery Institute is sitting three it's chairs sitting. over." So I can't just bound to say it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard, and it's like we. I don't much you with that compassion fatigue. It's like I feel I guilty do, yeah. to talk about my own problems because I hear about these other people every day that are going through some real crazy I'll shit. hang out with my normie friends mm-hmm. and just because I have one day that I'm in a rut and I don't want to talk like I'm nonverbal or something, I'll go home and I'm like, I'm a horrible friend. I'm so bad. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. didn't even care about them. But it's it's just fake. It's like a fake thing. We put it in our head. Yeah. I feel like it's always the people that I get the most annoyed with that probably were me like oh, a, totally. a couple years ago. They totally. annoy me the most. Like oh, yeah. me. Oh, I mean, I see myself <laughs> in like, I mean, we have... I have when I'm around maybe guys are around 24 25 yeah and you know it's I never thought I would be that dude that's like you don't know how good you have it but yeah like save your money bro yeah so yeah so it's so it's <laughs> love so, your mom it's so weird how I've now developed into that figure yeah. into like some younger guys lives what are your spiritual and overall goals for the next coming years I just want to say I love that that's not worded as like just your goals because then people inherently just start talking about their financial goals yeah. or what they want to obtain, their material goals. Yeah. I love that it's based off of spiritual and wellness. Yeah. Because I don't think that's focused on enough. Yeah. Um, so often, like when I was in early recovery, my first four or five months, everything was dictated off of when I could afford to do something. So yeah, uh, my goals with spiritual and overall wellness, I'd like to continue to grow in my faith mm-hmm. um, with my Hebrew and... Um, 
you know, my Yiddish, which is like uh, German, Hebrew, Russian combined. It's kind of like Jewish slang, <laughs> um, which is it's really fun language. That's where like the word schmuck comes from. I like it. Yeah, that's where I like, do like that word. We actually use a lot of Yiddish phrases like uh, I think yada yada. Is uh-huh. a Yiddish phrase. Um, anyhow, so yeah, just learning more about my culture, becoming the the person I want to become, which is a good father and a good son and a good husband. Learning more about myself, sticking with therapy. Yeah. I think a lot of people they stop going to therapy because they're not getting some magical results they're expecting to have happened when it begins. Yeah, I think part of it is just doing it regularly. Yeah. Um, so I want to see that. But um, my goal is to stay sober. I want to be there for my daughter and wife. Maybe emotionally, I want to learn to be more emotionally available as a human being, mm-hmm. um, even for my friends. I mean, just to be transparent, I can hang out with you even. And like you saw that when we were like, you're dropping me off at that birthday party the other night mm-hmm. where I was just, you're talking to me and it's like, yeah, okay, bye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, I, I want to get away from that. I want to, that just tells me how much growth I still have to do. Like I'm not, yeah. I'm not as at peace as I still think I am. Sometimes when we're in this community and when you're living in it, you don't step out of it enough of like the comfort of, so like now you'll probably go hang with your wife and daughter, but inside of a space that you know already. Yeah. You know no, what I totally. mean? Yeah. And I think when you're not like integrating enough, like, cause we do the sober socials and stuff, but if you're not making all of them and all you're doing is working and then you're at the house and you're not integrating enough, it just kind of feels like a cold plunge when you leave. Totally. Yeah. I, I definitely think so. I want to learn more too about like what Zach's into. When you're in addiction, you don't do anything. Like you literally have no character traits or anything like that or hobbies. So I'd like to get back into guitar again. And I just know there's another kid on the way coming too. I don't know. I don't know when it is, but I'm sure my wife it. and I will have another kid before I know it. Yeah. So, you know, I'm. it's life. It's a fine line because it's not about me anymore. It's about right. my daughter. It's about my children. It's about my my wife, um, but obviously you still have to have time for yourself. Mm-hmm. So I'm just hoping that I find a good balance of having my individuality and still being, you know, who I want to be. But um, who I really want to be is just a good father and a good husband. You yeah, know? I was so selfish in addiction for so long. Like my days of like having fun for me, I had enough of them. Yeah, like, I, I had enough. We of them. served it. We yeah. served it. I yeah. served that time. So now, what I genuinely find is fun is like seeing my daughter giggle and laugh. That's that's mm-hmm. better than any pair of clothing or trip to Vegas. I guess I'm just kind of developing into like a family man now, and that's where like having those kind of religious family values is really important to yeah, me. Yeah, well, religion will calm you down a lot. Yeah, It'll it make has. you realize the difference between like the devil and good. No, and, <laughs> I, and like, dude, I'm okay with just being bored now. Yeah. It sounds crazy, but like, I, I, and there's some people in recovery, they still got to be doing stuff. Yeah. And they got to be, you know, doing this yeah. and that. But like, dude, like today when we're done with this, my, my day We'll be video chatting my wife for half an hour. That's that's cool. Maybe do some like Torah study for a little bit and uh, just watching binge watching a Netflix show. Yeah, that's I'm totally content with that being my day. I'm totally content with that. And uh, it's a beautiful thing for me because there was once a time where every day was just how am I getting forty dollars? And then you obtain what you've been dying for all day just to potentially die. And then it not be satisfying. It's yeah, such like a not be enough. Even. Such a miserable yeah. existence that yeah. now, literally, like door dashing some food, having the money to yeah. door dash some food and and chill out is is. I guess that sums it up. My goals are just to be um yeah spiritually. I want to find a synagogue that I can call. I mean, my wife and I have yet to place our family roots yet, so mm-hmm. I think we're looking at moving to like Woodbridge. Mm-hmm. Seems like a nice area. Good to area. Live. Yeah, Good area to live halfway between New York and. Where we're at now, I still want to be close to you guys and CFC. Mm-hmm. I want to be part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of people say that, but it's been nothing but good for me. Alyssa and I were just talking about, um, you know, where I want to live. And I was like, you know, New Jersey's really been nothing but good to me. That's, I love Jersey. That's the other thing is I have no trauma here. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm not from here. All I know is yeah. sobriety. That I there's like no like Seven Eleven I look at that I'm like oh man I remember copying yeah that. I mean there's definitely for me trauma yeah. related with New Jersey and Florida a little bit as well but we all have trauma in Florida yeah we <laughs> all have trauma in Florida Florida trauma Florida Florida unreal. trauma is really yeah yeah <laughs> people come back crazy after Florida yeah. but um you know for me I just look at it as 
I am so blessed to just be on the other side where I can see all the things maybe I used to use and things like that, but I re-relate to it. And then now that I moved to Florida, so I moved to the state that I had some trauma, but I immediately ran back here. I just like the recovery in New Jersey too. Home is where the heart is. Home is where the heart is. Yep. I mean, it's where your roots are. You're you're kin, as we say in the South. Yeah, you can't go anywhere, Zach. We're the baby. She's cute. Yeah, so I enjoy it here. So yeah, just... Becoming a better person day by day. That's my goal. Just becoming a better person day by day. Well, with that, Zach, I want to thank you so much for being on today. Um, Last thing, any advice for someone that maybe is going through either a mental health crisis or a relapse and you want to just give them, you have to give them the best advice ever at that time. Oh, man. Okay. If God. Um, The best advice I'd have to give someone, and it's so cliche, but it gets better. It gets better as long as you do the next right thing. Like things are only going to get better, in my opinion, when you start taking matters into your own hands. You Mm -hmm. can't wait for anyone to just make it better for you. Mm -hmm. You have to actively try to do something to benefit yourself in a positive way. Whether that's just pick up the phone and start making calls. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't, the resources aren't out there. They generally usually are, I found, Mm -hmm. anywhere I've lived. Like get up, get the phone. You had no problem calling that dope dealer 20 times a day Mm -hmm. and him not not answering, Mm -hmm. waiting for an hour for doing nothing. So use that same time you would put into getting dope every day into bettering your life. If you if you put the half the energy you put into getting high every day as you do just being a mm-hmm. normal good person, uh, things will get better. Yeah. So you know, and if if you're dealing with suicidal thoughts and stuff like that, you know, there's resources out there. And forgive yourself. Learn to forgive yourself because who you are right now isn't who you have to be the rest of your life. You know, that's that's kind of my advice. But thanks for having me Thank on the show. You. It's been great. This is been a lovely experience i hope you're happy back yes absolutely i'm sure there's a lot more we could dive into as well and guys i just want to follow up that we do have coming up our thanksgiving give back um yes so if anyone would like to donate um please feel free to see the resource and the website that is on the underbar as well we do have the duffels of love coming up which we are helping the under um at-risk youth at ocean harbor house um supplying all the things they can need for the year coming up so if you would like to join that drive um that resource will be underneath as well and our annual ninth annual rock the farm has been postponed till june 1st on grant avenue in seaside heights and tickets are on sale at www.rockthefarmnj.com um there is going to be a black friday deal guys so keep posted for that i believe the code is capital b l c k 23 for the discount code. Thank you. Have a great night, guys.